live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophies. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Sometimes cultural appropriation truly can surprise me. And recently I was very surprised to learn that people other than black women were wearing bonnets out in public as some sort of statement. And that's our word of the week. Bonnet. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Rapper Jack Harlow was spotted outside wearing a bonnet. And I must admit that this is definitely not a trend that I saw coming. And as I have learned since Jack Harlow was spotted, other non-ethnic, non-black women and some men have been seen outside wearing bonnets, too. Now, I don't know if there is an emerging bonnet hive out there that none of us know about or if these are just simply outliers and not necessarily representative of a trend. But Jack Harlow set it off. And now there's this ongoing debate about whether or not it was appropriate for this white man to be out there wearing this bonnet. But before we get into whether this is cultural appropriation, I have one very pressing, relevant, important question to ask first. Are there any hair related reasons why Jack Harlow should be wearing a bonnet? Could this be for a legitimate hair purpose that we don't know about? Now, Jack Harlow has curls and they're sort of medium length. Maybe he's just trying to keep his shit tight. I don't know. Now, I do find it odd that he'd be wearing a bonnet in general because it's not like the shit looked good on him or he gave it some kind of different flavor. Frankly, he looked kind of stupid. But here's what I'm hoping doesn't happen. I'm hoping this doesn't become a thing. And suddenly when I go to Costco, I see a bunch of white folks out there wearing bonnets. Now, that's because if that happens, I guarantee it won't carry the same stigma that it does for black women who wear bonnets in public. When we do it, we're lacking class, we're ghetto, low rent, uncouth. They are playing all the anti-black hits when somebody sees us wearing a bonnet in public. Now, I'll be honest, I don't love seeing bonnets in public, but that depends on where the bonnet is worn. Because should it really be worn everywhere? Now, you got to make a quick trip to the store or you just run it to the bank, though only if you're going through the drive-thru or you're on a plane and it's a late flight or evening flight, I get it. But some of y'all will come out bonnet fresh for a 2 p.m. flight or you up in the real estate office wearing a bonnet. Now, while that's not a look for me, I'm also not standing on a chair and yelling and screaming about it. Do you, sis? You don't need me to co-sign. Live your life. Some people are using this as an indication that maybe Jack Harlow has gotten a little too comfortable and culturally he thinks he's one of us. Now, obviously, white folks are more than free to enjoy black customs and cultural habits, but I don't think any of us want them to be making a mockery of us or, again, that notion of getting too comfortable. Remember, you're always an interloper. You're a fly on the wall. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that Jack Harlow is overstepping his bounds, but I'm just going to need further investigation and explanation on why he's wearing this bonnet in public. I'm hoping he just put some pink moisturizer or some luster silk on his shit or something in there. And he needed to just keep his stuff contained. But we will see. Bonnet, our word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a terrific storyteller, a wonderful director whose most recent work includes the Whitney Houston biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Harriet and the Madam C.J. Walker miniseries that's on Netflix. Her original roots, though, are in acting, and we'll discuss how she transitioned from that to the director's chair and if she feels more valued now as a director than she did as an actor. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Casey Lemons. Casey, we're going to play a little bit of Negro geography. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so your husband, who's from Detroit, correct? Yes. Mondi Curtis Hall, 
I went to school with his son, Shay. Oh, you did? I did. Uh, back in the day, long, long time ago, I went to a Black-owned private school called Pyramid Elementary. All right. And Shay went to my school. <laughs> Get out. That's so funny. Wait till I tell him I was talking to you. Yeah, because I haven't seen Shay probably like a good, I don't know, probably 30 years. I think we did fifth grade together because I think we're the same age. So yeah, like I still remember. In fact... <laughs> You probably won't remember this, but we got into a little bit of a, a tiff in the lunchroom, Shay and I did, long, long, long time ago. I think we were talking about each other's mothers, and then it just went left after that. <laughs> Shay has five kids. He has five kids? What? Five kids. Wow. I don't know why I didn't realize that you and Vondi Curtis Hall, of course, the actor. And I remember when we were growing up, Shay used to talk about his father being an actor. And I think at first some of us like, sure, he's an actor. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out to be true. <laughs> but before we uh, get knee deep into talking about uh, your career and all the wonderful things that you have done, and of course, now that our game of Negro Geography is done, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Fairly recently, honestly. Uh, and I would say I didn't become unbothered. I spend more time unbothered than bothered, you know, and I work on being unbothered mindfully. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, was there something that happened recently that led to your unbotheredness? No, I mean, I think I think over time being in the entertainment industry where you can be so bothered that I learned as a survival skill. Um, it, when I say recently, I mean, you know, um, someplace midway through the six movies <laughs> that I've directed, I just um, found it's just much easier to not be bothered. So uh, with every movie that you direct, do you find yourself getting more and more unbothered? <laughs> well, you know, there's just so much bothersome about making movies. <laughs> so like I said, it's a mindful practice. I find myself practicing it more. Well, it's interesting because at least based off what I read, and you can certainly um, correct me, is that you always wanted to start off directing, even though a lot of people knew you as an actor first. But it seemed like at least the way it was phrased or at least characterized is that directing and producing was kind of more of your love than acting was. Is that accurate? No, I would say not. I mean, uh, acting was really my first love. So I started acting when I was a kid. I was very serious about it. I had the little shiny dreams that all actors have, you know, like I'm going to win an Oscar by the time I'm 27. You know, what I, mean? like, I really um, was very serious about acting. But the other thing that I was very serious about from an early age was writing. So I'd say I was an, I've been an actor and a writer the longest. And directing really came later. I, it was, I mean, when I say later, I mean, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, but later, because I was a child, because I started acting so early, sometime in my early serious acting career, I decided to go to film school. And even when I went to film school, I thought I wanted to make documentaries at first. You know, I wanted to make documentaries and fill the time between, um, you know, acting gigs, doing something meaningful. I had uh, Sally Richardson Whitfield on the podcast recently, as you know, she is she directs as well. And she said something that struck me that as an actor, she always felt disposable. Um, but as a director and producer, she doesn't feel the same. How has that transition and experience been like for you? Do you find that you feel more empowered as a director? I guess by nature of the job than you did as an actor. Well, you certainly feel more rarefied <laughs> and and, um, and therefore somewhat easier to appreciate. You know, even when I was uh, coming up as an actor and when Sally was coming up, you know, there were a lot of us, you know, very talented, um, beautiful, young black women that were um, working, you know, Probably it's many of them as unfulfilled as I was, but we were, you know, we were, there were a lot of us to choose from. Uh, certainly when I started directing, that was not the case at all. It were there very few of us. I always say it was like unicorns, you know, sometimes sighting each other, another unicorn sighting. But as a black woman, it was, it was very rare. And so it was easier to feel more appreciated and it was more of a phenomenon and it was, um, it was, it was somehow more important feeling. And um, more vital, you know. You decided to go to film school uh, for directing. What was that like? Because you had already been in the business, so you knew what it was like. But what was it like to then have to 
add this classroom uh, element to it. It was a great outlet because, you know, when I went to film school, I went to the New School of Social Research, um, which was a great program. But uh, like I said, I was kind of focused on making documentaries. So I, I, I thought I wanted to be a cinematographer, maybe even, you know, like like shoot them myself. So I was very interested in the camera. That was completely new for me, you know, um, just having a camera in my hands and, and setting up shots. So uh, that was something that that was was great. And then when I came out of film school, because at the same time, my writing career was really starting. When I came out of film school and I realized I was a hyphenate, you know, I was, I was an actress, writer, director, maybe even, that became really a source of, of great pride for me. And now you you teach, correct? Because you teach at NYU, don't you? I do. Okay. I've been teaching a long time. Oh, yeah. You, yes. This is not new. You have been teaching for a while. So I don't know. How does uh, give us an idea of what today's film student is like versus maybe when you were in school? Well, they are colorful. <laughs> uh, there are a lot more women, um, and just all kinds of diversity, all kinds of diversity, and very much proud of who they are. Very much comfortable in their own skin. Um, very empowered, actually, and and courageous, and um, inspiring. What are the young folks most anxious about? Well, there's so much pressure. I'd say most young people that I talk to, um, from my children to my students, there's there's so much pressure on them that has to do with uh, social media and um, expectations. But on a very basic level, most people are anxious about money. I mean, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a young artist, that you know, you're anxious about money. You're anxious about, is this going to work out? Am I going to be able to do this? Um, where do I fit in in the grand scheme of it? Um, and how do I express myself in a way that's essential? Well, right now, as I know you're more than aware that there is a massive, as of the recording of this podcast, a massive writer strike that is happening in Hollywood. Uh, what are your thoughts about this strike? That it's necessary. Um, that we wouldn't we wouldn't be on strike if it wasn't absolutely necessary. There are a lot of unresolved issues that have not been resolved in a way that is fair for people that really are responsible for for you know creating content and and um, the conglomeratization of of media, you know, and um, just the 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 metrics of how the money is made and, and who's making it, you know, I mean, there's still so much disparity and I feel like writers are particularly unappreciated um, considering the extent and the meaningfulness of our contribution. Uh, so yeah, power to the people. Uh, is, is the strike impacting you, you personally? I mean, I know you're a writer obviously, but did you have to stop production? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Stopped everything. <laughs> we, we, all, we all stopped everything. It's like, huh? Like I'm looking around. My husband is, is funny. He's like marking it off like day two. <laughs> day three, because you're walking around in circles and, you know, taking long walks with the dog. And it's, 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 um, it's great on one level. Look, it's always stressful. Nobody wants to go on strike, you know? Um, we would wish that we could resolve things in in a fair way that is 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 meaningful for us and um you know shows some thought and some respect you know um on the other hand like i i'm all for it i'm all for it and as long as it as it takes to get a fair deal uh, you know i have to say before this strike happened i was a little ignorant as to mostly in the streaming universe as to how writers were compensated or is the issue how they aren't compensated. And especially since we're at a time now where Netflix and, and, and because they're, they're shortening these series. It's like, I've heard so many people talk about how they don't really want to start a new series because it may only be for one season. It's like, if they don't get the immediate results of it being a huge hit out the gate, they just discard it and move on to the next thing. Seeing how much our consumption habits have changed, and I know you've done a lot of, of feature films, particularly lately, but I know you've also done some TV. How does that impact how you've had to change how you navigate in this space because of this consumption habits have changed so much? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because it brings a lot of opportunities, you know, for my students, you know. Uh, you know, I'm not mad at, at, um, at streaming per se, it's just trying to make the money, you know, uh, make sense 
to us, you know, um, which, which uh, nobody's been able to do yet. They are getting very, 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 you know, wealthy on this content. And there's so much content. I don't necessarily think that's in itself a bad thing. It's a great thing. I mean, it's allowing so many people to, to work and, and to get their voices out there. Um, I've certainly, you know, worked for streamers. I've worked in television. Um, I like movies, you know, that's, that's just me. I like movies and, uh, but I've also enjoyed my work in, in long form, you know, and, uh, and mostly, you know, coming in as, as kind of a guest director, I've really enjoyed the work that is being done. I think amazing work is being done in streamers and television, very brave, character driven, beautiful, beautiful work is being done. Speaking of your illustrious film career as a director, I don't know where the time went, but I didn't realize if my math is right, 25 years since Eve's Bought You, your directorial debut. Yeah. And <laughs> this, is probably, this is so silly, but me and a friend of mine, we used to love that movie and we used to quote it all the time. And every now and again, we just randomly say, and they were rubbing. I don't know why. <laughs> we'll be like, and they were rubbing. <laughs> I know. If you see Eve's by you, you totally get that line. <laughs> it was not meant to be comedic, but we somehow over the years made it comedic, me and my girl. <laughs> and so whenever somebody would hook up with somebody, I was like, ooh, girl, they were rubbing. <laughs> so funny. I got to tell Journey. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Do that. I don't think, I think when I had her on as a guest, I don't think I even told her that, but I was like, that line wasn't supposed to be funny. And I'm sorry, we are just too childish to have not made it. But nevertheless, that movie held up so well. Uh, what does that mean to you that a movie like that, that was done 25 years ago, still in present day, is still just so impactful and meaningful? It's one of the, the greatest and most humbling things that's ever happened to me, you know, artistically. It is um, incredible. It's incredibly meaningful. I almost can't describe it. Uh, when I meet people who tell me that, that this movie's played a part in their lives, you know, um, all kinds of people, it's incredibly meaningful to me. I feel like it's a, it's a gift and I feel that, that I'm being given the gift. And, you know, so hopefully, um, with this movie, I'm giving it back, you know, as well. Uh, it is very, very, very rich in my life. Looking at, that cast, you know, you have Lynn Whitfield and uh, Journey Smollett and Sam Jackson. I mean, it is just Megan Good. It's like a just a crazy cast. What do you remember most about what it was like trying to get that film made? Wow. Uh, so many things. Um, but definitely one thing that sticks in my mind um, in a story I tell my students all the time is that, you know, I could, I was on location in Louisiana with the crew there and starting to work hard and we didn't have an Eve that that was a very hard character for me to cast. Um, I was looking for qualities that I, I perhaps wasn't articulating correctly. Um, she had a little bit of me in it for sure. Um, a little bit of scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, you know, she was very well defined in my head and I, I, I just wasn't finding her. And it was really at the last minute, you know, in the final hour that my casting director, Jackie Brown, had me come back to Los Angeles from location in Louisiana to see Journey Smollett. And um, what a wonderful experience. I was just texting with her uh, a few minutes ago. Just what a wonderful gift it was finding this young performer who was um, able to really someplace within herself uh, come up with this this character which was which was the character in my mind and gets uh, so much better and more fulfilled as always happens when actors come on a project and and start saying the words and you're like it's just beyond your wildest dreams and the other thing was that Megan had been on the project so long that when we first started our read through she was Eve you know and and she was Eve and, she, and it took take so long to get the movie made that she grew into Cicely and just what a gift that was to have this this girl that was interested in doing this very complex movie from the time that she was 10 to the time she was 15, you know, and, and had grown into into the character of Cicely. And what a just what a tremendous gift that whole cast was. It was a terrifying road to getting it made, though. 
I was going to ask, so did it take five years to make? Yeah, it took, it, it took quite a while. I'm thinking, I wrote the script in 92 and, and we made it in, in 96. But, you know, that's not that long for movies. <laughs> movies can take forever. No, it's not. You know, I, I, I tell people all the time, one thing I've learned now living in Los Angeles, like it's hurry up and wait might as well be the unofficial motto <laughs> of what it takes to get things made. I mean, I have a whole new respect for that, like living in this town. So, um, so yeah, no, you're right. By Hollywood standards, it's like, oh, yeah, that's like a, a drop in the bucket. Now, did you know when you wrote the script, did you already have an idea of who you wanted to play? each of these characters? No, I wrote the script as kind of an experiment in expression, really. Um, I thought it might be a novel. Uh, I kept, it was a series of short stories that I had written. Then I thought I might turn them into a novel. And then it started to come out in script form, which was not surprising. But I wrote it thinking one day when I'm older and wiser, I will possibly direct this, but it wasn't immediately on my mind. It was like, oh, I'll put it in a drawer and I will save it until I'm smarter, <laughs> and, you know, um, and, or maybe I don't fit into my little black audition dress, you know, and I'll do it later. That's really was my first thought. And then we started looking for a director for the project. And that process was very interesting. Um, I'm extremely fortunate that everybody said no because we went out to some pretty exciting people. And, uh, and it really was, I took some meetings that, where I realized it, it, it became crystal clear to me that what I had written was um, delicate and that it could easily be misconstrued and that, it, that what was very important to me was a fine line and um, crossed boundaries and, and things that were actually quite subtle and that if I didn't direct it myself, it wouldn't be used by it. I'm just thinking, cause I think that the movie was made in 97. In 96, it came out in 97. 96. Okay. So that was a very interesting time for black movies at that time. There was nothing like that being made at times. How discouraging was the process for you in trying to get this done at a time where, you know, again, this really wasn't the type of black films that were being made on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing was it was so discouraging that it, that it almost wasn't discouraging. It was like, it was so discouraging that it was like, well, it will be a miracle if this happens. You know what I'm saying? So I was very determined. And what really helped bolster my determination was how much people responded to the script. So I took I took hundreds of meetings because people that probably had no intention of doing the movie, just wanted to meet me because the script they found compelling. And, um, and once I realized the power of the script, I started to believe this is a movie that's, that's you know, going to ma get made. And like I said, took lots of meetings as a writer before I even was certain that I was the director for it. So I was discouraged, but uh, I would say I became even more discouraged later after I made that, the movie uh, by, by other projects I've tried to put together. Uh, Eve's Bayou was so um, unlikely. <laughs> it was kind of preposterous, right? So it was, it was so unlikely that, uh, that every, every moment of it was a gift. Those out there who are listening, uh, the year that East Bayou came out, it was the highest grossing independent film of the year, which is quite remarkable, uh, you know, for any film, but definitely for an independent film. When you think about all the things you may have learned from that initial uh, directing experience, what are some of the things that you learned from Eve's Bayou that still stay with you? It has to do with the, the nature of kind of the movie industry and the art of making movies, because there was still something that was so personal. It was not um, strictly autobiographical uh, in any way, but it was very, very personal. The, the language was personal. The characters were personal, were, were you know, based on people that I knew and uh, that I'm related to, you know, and I didn't realize the extent to which it belongs to more than just me. <laughs> and in the process of that deep collaboration, 
you know, the collaboration with other artists I've always understood and, and I'm empowered by. It's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things. Uh, but, but just the industry of it and, um, my responsibility to the people giving me the money and, um, how that relationship works. And I remember my agent saying to me one day, and it stuck with me all this time. He said, it's not a painting case. <laughs> And I really um, appreciate that. I appreciate it. And I tell my students this a lot. You know, it, it, it requires a level of collaboration that is very challenging, um, where the director must stick to her guns, but also allow for uh, the opinions uh, of other people who maybe, you know, the, the, this is not at all personal for them. Maybe this is a, a new world that is opening and still they have a, a, a very real stake in it. And these are your partners. And so that kind of, that was an, an evolution, I would say, in, um, in my thinking, you know, from before I directed anything to directing where I am now. Do you think it would be easier to make Eve's Bayou today than it was then? Well, I do. Yeah, I think it would be easier. I, it's so funny because sometimes we say, oh, God, we can never get it made today. And sometimes it seems like it's easier. I think that right now, if there was a student coming out of film school when, you know, with a, with a script um, that evolved, I think that that would be a pretty powerful thing. Have you over the years um, ever considered or seriously considered giving it a second treatment? Uh, I asked because um, one of the, the shows lately that I've been watching is Fatal Attraction that is now on uh, Paramount Plus. And I was like, mm, this, I really enjoyed how they reimagined this. Have you ever given any thought to doing some different kind of treatment of, of Ease Bayou? I have, absolutely have. Um, at the same time, there was perfection about it. And I don't mean, oh, that's a perfect work of art. I just mean, when you think about the impact, like the lasting impact of it, and um, it's a miracle anytime you get a group of people that are that exceptional all together working on the same project. You know, just the quality of the artists and and the the dedication with which they came to the film um and that and and the way the audience came to the film there's something so special about it that i'm very hesitant to mess with since we're in the the way back machine with your career i i would be remiss if i did not at any point in this conversation talk to you about fear of a black hat <laughs> okay love it fear of a black hat is one of my favorite movies ever and for those who haven't you know, seen it, I think about this movie and I'm like, now that's a movie. I don't think that would get made today. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe I was like, I mean, it's, it's supposed to be a satire, you know, about hip hop and everything. And it was just so perfectly. And I mean, it was a comedy and it was, it was wonderfully done, but you have to give me the backstory or as much as the origin story as you can about how that project came to be. I'm, I'm not sure I remember how it even came to me. I read a script, but it was so much, a, there was so much improvisation involved in Fear of a Black Hat. I just really trusted Rusty's vision. You know, I, I, I trusted him. He was onto something and, and I did it because it was terrifying because I was working with comedians who were just quick on this, on the spot. And I never have been in my life. I've always been kind of like slow on the uptake, you know, like I'm always like, I'm a daydreamer, you know, I'm just not, um, I, I'm not that person that just, just uh, speaks off, off the cuff, uh, and says witty, funny things. And, and I'm in awe of people like that. And so to get a chance to work with, with comedians that were so incredibly funny and Rusty's a genius, you know, I, I, it was incredible. Well, I guess compared to the comedians, uh, you know, and, and for those who are not familiar with the plot, this is like, you know, fear of a black hat is playing off of, of course, public enemies fear of a black planet. And it's about a fictitious, you know, sort of rap group trying to make their way. And, and you're like very much the conscious, you know, straight woman of the movie in the sense like you're the voice of reason like this whole movie but that only made the movie even funnier because you are <laughs> the voice of reason in this total ridiculousness that's like happening 
around you or whatever. But that is a movie, honestly, that did age pretty well. I just don't know if it would get made today. <laughs> I don't either, but it's so funny because it has fans everywhere. You know, I remember <laughs> going to like a film festival in, in London. I think this was around, it might've been around Eve's Bayou and somebody saying, you know, which my favorite film is, is Fear of a Black Hat. And, and it does come up periodically. You know, somebody will tell me how much they love that film. So it's, it's, it's wonderful that, that you're a fan. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I, I realize I'm, I might for some people be going into a deep cut right there, but it is it's definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> so would you consider yourself retired from acting? No, I've never thought about it that way. I've always thought if somebody hit me with the exact right thing that I thought I could bring something to it, um, I thought that there wasn't anybody better that could do it. I mean, that's a big thing. I've learned, I would say, greater appreciation for actors as a director than I even had as an actor. Um, I mean, I've always loved acting in that elusive, wonderful art form. Um, but I think that as a director, I've really learned to appreciate actors in a completely different way. And I would have to think that I could bring something unique and meaningful to the role in order for me to, to do it. And then I would have to have the time in my schedule uh, where I wasn't teaching or making movies or, or, you know, or writing something that I was, that, you know, I didn't want to step away from. So um, I'd say other things have become more essential for me. Does directing give you the same thrill as acting or the same, you know, whatever it is, that creative fire that you get from being an actor, does directing give that to you? More. Um, directing is, is besides, you know, having children and a family, directing is the most challenging thing that I've ever done. And it's so absorb. It absorbs you on so many different levels and you have to be present. You have to be very present as an actor and you have to be very present as a director. And that the type of um, what it requires, the amount of attention, presence and relaxation that it takes is similar to acting, uh, you know, but it, it's it's great to build something from the ground up that's that big. It's like painting on a really huge canvas and, you know, and then being able to step back and say, oh, I, I built that. Well, um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. And I shouldn't be surprised that the first half of this podcast was between Eve's Bayou and Fear of a Black Hat. But <laughs> I definitely want to talk to you about I Want to Dance with Somebody, which I didn't see until maybe a few weeks ago, actually, because I meant to go see it in the theater. I got caught up with life. And then I was so excited when I finally took a flight. It was like, oh, it's on here. Let me dive right in. So a whole lot of questions I want to ask you about that. And I'm hoping you'll give me a very hopeful update about Shadow King, which I know is something else that you have been working on. But for now, we will take a very quick break and we'll be back with more with Casey Lemons. up later in today's episode i'll be giving my thoughts on the latest story sweeping the internet and that is all this foolishness going on with nba star zion williamson who has got a baby mama two girlfriends on the side he out here trying to be pinky from next friday anyway all of zion williamson's drama came bubbling to the surface because here's something you may or may not know about women we don't like to feel stupid we don't like to feel embarrassed. And when that happens, our pride and ego go on a warpath. And I got a story to tell about one time I let my pride undermine my dignity. Now, I was in a relationship once with someone who was recently divorced. And let's just say that things were tenuous at best between him and his ex-wife at the time. They were trying to figure out co-parenting with some mixed results. Now, from where I stood, it seemed like his ex was trying to create trouble in our relationship with macro and micro aggressions. Case in point, we once were on vacation and she found out where we were staying, called the room and left this crazy ass message on the voicemail about how she wanted him back and all this other nonsense. Because not only do women hate being embarrassed, another thing some of us don't like is when you get happy before they're happy. Honestly, it's because we are exceptionally petty. And in the case of their breakup, he had moved on before she did. And I knew that shit was going to be an issue. Now, it became quite clear to me that there were some unresolved issues that hadn't been dealt with between them. Now, while I didn't think he still had feelings for his ex, 
Was I a thousand percent certain? There was part of me that remained a little bit skeptical. And at that point in our relationship, her and I hadn't even met yet. And because we were growing more serious, I knew that her and I would eventually have to meet because of their son. I mean, if I was going to be around their son, eventually I had to meet her. And I thought that was more than fair. While it wasn't something I was exactly looking forward to based off the behavior she'd already exhibited. And I also was a little suspicious about what was really going on because he seemed so anxious about me meeting his ex. I mean, I thought if things were on the up and up, what was there to be anxious about? Her and I, we wasn't going to box because I'm a grown ass woman, dog. It might be uncomfortable and awkward, but that was going to be about it. So one night he told me that she popped up at his place, as in he walked into his apartment and she was sitting right there. And the reason that happened is because their son had a key to his apartment and that's where she got it from. Now, let me add a disclaimer here before I continue. I only have one side of this story, so I'm working with his version of these events. So he's telling me what the deal is and I'm furious like beyond furious. I asked him why he wasn't immediately kicking her out his place, but he wanted to take a more diplomatic approach because she is the mother of his child and they have to get along and yada, yada, yada. Even though I'm like, yeah, fuck all that. She gots to go. I guess she said that she wanted to talk to him about something serious, which y'all already know what that sounds like to me. He told me he would handle it, but was I confident that he would handle it? Hell no. Now, I lived about an hour and a half away. So what do y'all think I did? A, drove to his house. B, drove to his house really fast. Or C, drove to his house really fast while listening to Sunshine Anderson's Heard It All Before. The answer would be D, all of the damn above. Now, when I got there, I opted not to knock on the door and make a scene. I actually didn't want them to know I was there because I was about to go on a full-fledged stakeout. Now, he lived in an apartment complex and I was able to find a parking spot where he wouldn't recognize my car, but I had a perfect view of where I could see his front door. And so I waited and waited and waited. Maybe a little over an hour goes by and I see her come out. She looked normal. Y'all know I definitely peeped to see if she looked disheveled or like she had just rolled out of somebody's bed. Now, after she left, I called him from his parking lot and pretended to be at home. Because I made sure that I stuck around long enough just in case she doubled back. Because maybe she might have just been making a run to the store or whatever. I remember at one point while I was talking to him, a loud ass car honked or something. And he asked, hey, did I just hear a car honk? And I was like, nah, that was my television. (laughs) He told me she did want to discuss their relationship, specifically why there was so much hostility between them. And like I said, they had unresolved issues. But at least it appeared to be in that moment. They were unresolved, non-romantic issues. He could have been lying, though I don't think he was. Now, as I was making that hour and a half drive back home, though this time I think I was listening to something a little more mellow, little Jill Scott, I had to have a real conversation with myself. I spent two hours and some change in a dark-ass parking lot acting like I'm Mike Lowry from Bad Boys because I thought he wasn't being honest with me and I was being played for a fool. When we got more serious and when the ex and I finally got cool, yes, that happened. We got on good terms, but that's a story for another time. I did eventually tell him that I was out there lurking in the parking lot while he and his ex were having this conversation. And you know what he did when I told him that? That motherfucker laughed his ass off. He couldn't believe I had done something so silly and time consuming. And to be honest, that's what my goofy ass deserved. And now back to more with Casey Lemons. As I mentioned before the break, Casey, I recently saw I Want to Dance with somebody, which I absolutely loved. And I have to say, I didn't know what was going to be the treatment of Robin Crawford. I frankly didn't know if she was in the movie. I had uh, Naomi Aki on the podcast before and and we talked a little bit about it. So I was um, a lot of it just like it caught me off guard in a good way. I was like, oh, I really didn't expect this for you as, as a director of this movie. Why was it important for you to sort of center the relationship uh, with Robin Crawford, who is Whitney Houston's longtime personal friend. And they had a very full relationship, as I know some people know about. But a lot of directors might have been a little hesitant about trying to center that story. So why was it important for you to center that relationship? I wouldn't have done the movie if uh, she was not a central, one of the central characters. I think that this goes way back because, you know, I, I knew Whitney a little bit. Um, I wrote two screenplays for Whitney. 
And we knew, even though we didn't know, uh, know her or know them like that, we knew as young artists in New York, we just knew about Whitney and Robin. Like, it's like, you know, we just, you know, somehow knew about it. Um, I can't even remember the first time I heard that, you know, but it was important to me because when you, you look at, she had a lot of complex relationships. I look at it, them as love stories because truly they were love stories. There were the, the love story with her family, the love story with Bobby, the love story with Clive and the love story with Robin. So many of her, of her loving relationships uh, were a little fraught, you know, and, and complex. And, and um, some of them were dysfunctional. And I think in some ways, the relationship with Robin was a very, was the least dysfunctional. It was, it was a real, you know, Robin had her back and, um, and there was something uh, pure, you know, in that friendship that was very important to me. Where some of the other relationships which were real, which were powerful, which were so, so meaningful in her life, like a relationship where the mother was still, you know, th these relationships were still a little fraught. Um, and I thought that Robin, in some way, it was, the, it was the simplest of the love stories. Now, uh, would you have, you said that you wouldn't have done the film unless you could in some way center that relationship. Uh, how much maybe easier or better was it that the family also, I think before you even signed on, at least that, that's what I read, that they had given their permission for this, uh, for that relationship, uh, Whitney's relationship with Robin to be discussed and to be a part of the story. How much easier or better did that make things? It was still complicated to navigate it and just um, to balance it and how much and, you know, and what are, exactly are we saying? But I really commend them for that. I really commend them, especially Pat. I just think that that was that was brave of, and honest, you know, of, of her. And um, and I really commend the estate for wanting to tell a balanced story. You, as you said a moment ago, you knew Whitney Houston a little bit. Do you remember the first time you met her and what that was like? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> kind of hard to forget, right? When you think you don't forget it. Um, yeah, it was a specific circumstance because I was coming to pitch her a, um, a movie that I, that I wanted her to star in. And her entire team was there in a conference room. And in walks Whitney, and it's definitely a day off, you know. Um, she's in sweats. And um, it changed me. And in some ways really informed the way that I look at celebrity and uh, was very instrumental in how I approached the movie because this was a woman, you know, it was just a woman and she was tired, exhausted and I could feel the weight of celebrity on her and how uncomfortable a burden that that could sometimes be. I could feel the human black womanness of her on that level she moved me quite tremendously. When you were tasked with obviously directing this film, as you know, there's a, this is a big undertaking because so many people love, still do, love uh, you know, Whitney Houston. What did you want people to most take away from it? It was, it was something about that. It was like, there's a woman here. And if we understand that she's a person like we are with struggles and um, who's complex, who has loving relationships um, that aren't all uh, perfect. If we understand her, her on a woman level, on a human level, on a black woman level, um, we can even more greatly appreciate the incredible gift that she gave us. You know, sometimes when you look at somebody as just a celebrity or an idol, um, it, it, it's a very superficial understanding of who that person is. And um, it, be, it becomes easy to to attack them. You know, right now we're living in an age where people just attack each other all the time. And and I like to. It was great that that the movie touched on that to me. You know how how even the black community kind of went after her. You know, um, we can be cruel sometimes, and and without even bothering to understand who people are, uh, based on a very superficial understanding. Was there anything about her that you learned um, that stayed with you? Uh, you know, as you were directing this film that maybe you didn't know before? I think there were a lot of little things that I didn't know before. I was very moved by her relationship with her mother. I was very, very moved by her process with Clive and how involved she was in that process. 
how involved she was in, in kind of specifying, knowing what was a Whitney Houston song. I was very moved by how she could speak to a moment in time. I think in a way, most of us don't really quite understand the moment that we're, that we're in or that we're speaking to. We don't overly analyze where we are in history. And there was something about Whitney, you know, knowing the importance of this moment she was in singing the national anthem, knowing the importance of, of being the first black artist to sing to a free South Africa um, and Nelson Mandela and just and, and intersecting with these moments in time in a way that was so profound and inspirational. Um, those are kind of the things that I take away. Yeah, that part I thought was really noteworthy because um, it reminded me of something I thought about Michael Jackson is the genius of Michael Jackson actually gets downplayed a lot. And I think the genius of Whitney Houston, I think you were able to really illustrate that. Like you said, like her being able to hear a note and know like, oh, no, no, it should be this way, not that way. And her being very empowered and very direct about how she, not just how she wanted to sing, but how she wanted to put together a song. And so I, I thought that was like a really important note that you made sure to tap into with the film. Was there anyone maybe in her camp that was unhappy with the movie? I don't think so. I mean, we went back and forth quite a bit, you know, through 10 months of editing. Uh, so everybody saw the, the movie many times, you know, everybody saw many cuts of the movie where there was a lot of discussion on many cuts of the movie. There were fights, you know, um, and, and, you know, and negotiation is what I would say um, on, on what was in the movie. I think that everybody was, was pretty happy with, um, you know, we had come to a place of, of some agreement. I mean, you never agree on absolutely everything. Um, but I think that, no, I think, I think, in terms of, of me and the estate and the producers, we were all um, we we're all happy with it. Um, you de certainly don't like to make things easier on yourself when it comes to you directing movies involving real people, because before that it was Harriet Tubman. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You, you swing for the fences. I will, I will say that. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's tough because uh, I know there's this ongoing debate about, should we still be telling stories about say like a Harriet Tubman or, uh, things dealing with um, the enslaved part of our history, which my opinion is tell it all, right? There are still our stories. Absolutely. Was that at all when you decided to direct Harriet Sarah and Cynthia Revo? Was that something at all that you even were reluctant about or even cared about? No, I have no reluctance. Um, I, I love American history and African-American history is American history we cannot look away from this. We have to understand it. This whole movement, not to teach it, you know, to somehow downplay you know, slavery or what we've been through or our contribution to this country is absolutely infuriating to me. I think, um, I think that people who understand their place in history are anxious to embrace that. I think movies on difficult things, how many movies have there been on even one war uh, that we've had or the Holocaust or things that are very important and extremely traumatic are things that we need to understand so that we don't repeat them, right? We have to under, understand history so that we, we're not doomed to repeat it. And um, as, as many wise people have said, and so that is the way that I look at, at African-American history. It's something that we need to understand. And the stories, though painful, often are incredibly inspirational. I mean, nothing's more inspirational than the story of Harriet Tubman. I mean, this is somebody who was just monumentally brave and, and, and a, you know, a woman that was that monumentally brave, a small, petite woman, you know, um, born enslaved who couldn't read or write who was able to do things that, that, um, that today it's the very, very bravest of human beings. Uh, and so that, that to recognize and celebrate that in our own history and how we've, I mean, there's, there's, there's some incredible magic in our resilience. And I think that that needs to be celebrated and talked about so we can appreciate who we are, you know, and what we've done for this country. This country would be nothing without African-Americans. And I say, tell those stories and tell them over and over again. So when you were uh, thinking about how you wanted to approach telling the story of Harriet Tubman, what would you say were some of the central themes that it was important for you to like, OK, I want 
to show this part of her or this part? Like, how did you organize that? I wanted to show her as a young woman. That was one of the most exciting things. This photograph had just surfaced of her as a younger woman. You know, we were so used to the old woman in the chair, you know, seeing old images of Harriet Tubman, very kind of stern faced and, um, and far removed from when she was doing this most exciting work. I mean, though there were chapters of her life, she stayed exciting, you know, um, and, and so much of her life was not told in that movie, but it was talking about this time when she was actively rescuing slaves, you know, and herself coming from that environment and then what she was able to recognize about humanity. Everybody deserves to be free. And if I'm free, then my family deserves to be free and other enslaved people deserve to be free. Um, that was a monumental time in her life, which was even 10 years before the young picture that we see of her. You know what I'm saying? So to me, to bring a young black heroine to the screen who was a real woman and getting to access her at this time when she was doing her most courageous work, that was important. And the other important thing was her spirituality and her belief in in God to to the point where other people were like, okay, well, I don't know if, if I believe it, but I know that she believes it. That was incredible. Is there a historical figure who you love to do their biopic on? Well, I got to tell you, um, at this moment in time, I'm a little biopic out for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, hopefully, it's not because you thought those two experiences were uh, were traumatized. <laughs> no, because they were so great. Yeah. You know, they were so great that, I mean, at this point in my life, I kind of just want to make up shit. You know, but, but um <laughs> I like speaking to history. Yeah, they're, they're, I love the civil rights movement. Uh, there's so many chapters of the civil rights movement. I would love to do a piece on the civil rights movement. I do love the stories of real people, but no, I can't say there's a biopic that I'm burning to do. Well, um, this is based off historical fiction. I, I mentioned a few minutes ago about The Shadow King, which is a historical fiction novel about Ethiopian women soldiers that I believe you've been tasked to direct. So where does that project stand? Yeah, it's one of my favorite scripts that I've written. It was an adaptation of Mazumigiste's beautiful book. I love this project. It's a very interesting point in history. Um, when you know Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia and, and the Ethiopian resistance and the the women fighters um it, it's a fabulous story it's it's a it's a big undertaking um it's not an easy project to to uh, get made none of them are um and and my i got to say as time has gone on and i realize like the time it took to make Eve's body was short and you, we have to we, it takes a, a patience and perseverance and the continuing to to push the massive stones uphill you know I'm very hopeful that I will get to make that movie and I have a vision for it. And uh, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, important story that I look forward to telling. So hopefully we're, we're working on putting it together still. And so hopefully I get to tell that story soon. I, I know you two are, are good friends, Gina Prince-Bythewood, who obviously did The Woman King. Seeing the success of that, is that something that helps your case with this movie that you want to do. You know, I know they're two kind of different stories, but does it help? Because, it, you know, your movie would also be very, you know, female-centered, obviously. So does that help your case? I mean, I would, I would hope that it does. It's so interesting because at the time, um, gee, there was a time when Jean and I both thought that those would be our next movies. You know, she was do doing Woman King. I thought mine was going to be The Shadow King. We were like, isn't this wild um, how this, each of us on our sixth movie might be talking about women warriors, but they're very different stories. Um, yes, I would hope so. I mean, look, how wonderful is a woman king? I mean, just magnificent. And I so appreciate that movie in the world, you know, and, and what it's, what it's saying about to and about us, you know, just as people and as women, I think it's beautiful. So yeah, hopefully. When you do a lot of sort of heavier movies, is there a part of you that thinks like, anybody got a good old romantic comedy for me? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, uh, can I get something? Can I, can I get a Dumb and Dumber in here or somewhere? Yeah, I, I, um, I love all kinds of movies. 
Um, so I'm very attracted. I love thrillers and I love action and I love um, com romantic comedy. I do like drama, though, I got to say. I, I do like drama. So even I like I like romantic dramas, you know. Yeah, I, 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 I want to do all kinds of movies. I think that, you know, like every director has kind of six projects and, and they're all over the place. They're all kinds of ones, you know, they're futuristic. They're everything. Uh, yeah, because I, I mean, when if anybody looked at your IMDb, it's like Madam C.J. Walker, Harriet Tubman, like um, um, Mamie Teal. It was like, oh my god! Like I know at some point she's got to be thinking, like I I would love to do a Marvel movie. How about that? <laughs> Let's blow some shit up. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, Casey, before I get you out of here, there's a game I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. It's very simple. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this. I give you two choices and you have to pick one. And this is where all the controversy happens. I just want you to know. <laughs> all right. Uh, first out the gate, Prince's 1999 or Whitney's I Want to Dance with Somebody. Because of the songs that were so meaningful to me in terms of Whitney, I would have to say that those two, the moment in time that both of, that those are speaking to um, and, and where I was with that music at that time, I would, I would say Prince because my, my love for Whitney was um, there, there were, there were different songs, you know, a slightly different time. Whereas as Prince 1999, that was, you know, that was my jam. That was it, you know. <laughs> I have a bigger influence on you as a filmmaker. She's got to have it or Sugar Cane Alley. Impossible. <laughs> that, that's not a choice. <laughs> but those are two of my influences. I know. <laughs> wow. I mean, she's got to have it was a sea change. It was just a, it was a seismic shift in voice, you know, the, in independent black cinema. It was an incredible moment in time. It's a film that meant so much to me. I mean, our world was rocked by She Gotta Have It. She's, she's got to have it. But um, Sugarcane Alley was speaking of my language in a way that was um, so significant because I knew that I wanted to speak to a child's perspective. I knew that I wanted to incorporate magic realism in my work. And so uh, I would have to say Sugar Cane Alley. When we were talking earlier about how much maybe you seriously considered giving a second treatment to Eve's Bayou, that the number one project I thought of was She's Gotta Have It, you know, how it was adapted to modern day, became a series, you know, so I was like, ah, oh, I could see something similar happening with, with Eve's Bayou. Okay. Uh, so Ardelia Map, Silence of the Lambs, or Nina Blackburn, Fear of a Black Hat? Also difficult. They're not going to get easier. I just want you to know. <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to say Ardelia's, you know, I'm going to have to say Ardelia Matt. <laughs> now, how did you land that role? Well, I auditioned for it. And, uh, you know, I prayerfully, <laughs> hopefully, you know, uh, I wanted it so badly. I read the book. I wanted to play this part. And um, it was just a tremendous moment in my career as an actor. It was a tremendous experience for me to work with with Jody and just to be in a cast of that caliber, to work with Jonathan Demi, who I loved. Uh, this was it was a very big moment in time. And finally, and we can get you off the hot seat with this one, since I brought up your good friend, Gina Prince Bythewood, uh, Woman King or Old Guard? I'm a huge Gina Prince Bythewood fan. I I love all of her movies. Um, I love the old guard, but I have to say, The Woman King was very, very special to me, uh, and to, and to so many of us. I think just I think the idea of just uh, women warriors presented so beautifully, and uh, a level of of reality to it that wasn't dependent on what somebody else thinks glamour is. Um, that was just the real beauty of women, the strength and the beauty in strength. Uh, yeah, I have to say the woman. Came. Yeah, that was definitely a moment for all of us. And, you know, it's definitely one of my favorite movies I've seen in, in recent years. And uh, you just don't usually see not just black women centered that way, but even shot that way. Just cinematically. Exactly. You don't see that. And so that movie uh, really set off a bunch of different touchstones. So I think... Uh, I, I was really happy and proud that 
Gina got to experience, you know, that level of success because that that movie, that movie deserved it. And I was ready to pick it when it got shut out of the I think it was the Oscars. I think that's what it was. I was like, I'm ready with my side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Let's not talk about it. No, 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 not, not at all. We'll just enjoy the film for being great. Well, um, Casey, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. And of course, I appreciate your work and know that you have so much more that'll be coming uh, from you. So looking forward to all the new things that you have happening. And uh, yeah, who knew? Who knew that uh, <laughs> there was that Detroit connection there between me, <laughs> me and Shay? That is so funny. Wait till I tell him. That is so funny. Former classmate. Like, so yeah, no, that um, that was pretty funny when I read that. I was like, wait a minute. I know. No, Wandy's son. But anyway, much continued success. Thank you for everything and all the work that you do and appreciate you spending the time. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. All right. Well, uh, Casey is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. One of the downsides of social media is that it has eliminated the mystery around celebrities. And the unfortunate result is that we're finding out way too much information about people in the spotlight. And fuck it, I'm bothered. Last week, I and many others were subjected to learning the inner workings of NBA superstar Zion Williamson's relationships. Now, to this point, all we had known about Zion is that he's a promising young basketball player whose career hasn't quite taken off the way that some expected because he's been plagued by injuries. Now we all know a little bit more about what Zion's life has been like off the court. And I cannot say any of us are better off for having this information. First, the good. Zion and his current girlfriend revealed on social media that the couple is expecting a baby girl. But child, before the pink smoke had even cleared from he and his girlfriend Akima's gender reveal party, adult film star Mariah Mills took to social media to let everybody and their mama know what was really going down. Now, I'll admit I was not familiar with Mrs. Mills work and certainly am not here to shame her about her sex work, as many others have tried to do. Unless you pay her bills, what right do you have to clown her about her work? And if it's true that Zion chose to engage in a relationship with this woman, they both grown. Besides, I'm going to guess there's a lot of folks out there who, if they had Zion's type of money, which is an one hundred and ninety five million dollar contract with the Pelicans, they would be getting their freak on in every corner of the world because y'all nasty. But do I need to know the details? I promise you, I wouldn't have minded never learning about how they get down in a sexy time. Also, on top of that, Mills indicated she might be pregnant, too. And then there was this other woman who emerged who called Zion a sex addict and seemed to be pretty upset by the baby news. Ladies, ladies, ladies. Listen, a lot of us have been there before, as in we've gotten humiliated by someone we thought we were in a relationship with. To quote that great urban philosopher Marlo from The Wire, we wanted it to be one way and it turned out it was the other way. But sometimes you got to charge that shit to the game, take the L and keep it moving, ladies. Aaron Zion Williamson out will perhaps cause some momentary and fleeting embarrassment for him and it will give you some temporary satisfaction. And until Zion changes the narrative by being the dynamite basketball player most people think he will be, he probably going to get these jokes and some raised eyebrows. But at the end of the day, Zion is going to be a father. And for now, he seems very happy in the relationship dynamic that he's in. Running the social media isn't going to change that. And a lot of things you say about him now, well, some of these things you were gladly willing to accept when it was beneficial for you. And Zion, I hope you have also learned a lesson from this. You out here zigging when you need to be zagging, player, because it seems pretty obvious you are not equipped to play in this particular sandbox. And personally, I don't want to hear shit else about it. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh, 
My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.